Please be seated. What a hymn. And I think you all know that it was inspired partly by the gospel reading, which I will turn to in a moment, and also by the life experience of the author, John Newton, who was benefiting from the slave trade as the captain of slave ships. And England, although many people were not enslaved on, um, in England, it was English ships running the Middle Passage, which was the most horrific experience. And then these slave ships were docked oftentimes in England, and it was through this experience of realizing the horror that he was perpetrating that he had a conversion experience. So lost and then found, blind and then seeing was him reorienting his life and becoming an abolitionist and working to right the wrongs that he had been a part of. And so let us turn to the Gospel of Luke in the 15th chapter. I began with this with the children and told them the parable of the lost sheep, but what I didn't begin with is how that this story is in response to people challenging Jesus. It begins with, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Not only does he welcome them, but he would share a meal with them, something very intimate in that society and today. So it's in response to that that he tells the story of the lost sheep. And I'll pick up where I left off with the children. So he would bring this lamb home, and he would call together all his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then the parable of the lost coin follows. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then the parable the parable of the prodigal son. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that will belong to me. What he doesn't say, of course, is after you are dead and gone. Let's pretend that that is now. Give it to me now. A really hurtful thing to say to your father. And so the father divides his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, I love that expression, when he came to himself, when he returned to his right mind, 
He said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him coming and it was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And we know he planned to say more, but the father's interrupting him here to say to his slaves, quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet, and get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. It would be easy to focus on the next part of the story, but I just want to gloss over it a little bit because I don't want to focus on this very sad relationship between the two brothers. I wish that this brother had rejoiced when he saw his brother returning. I wish the love they felt for one another was strong enough. But here it wasn't. The elder son was in the field. He came and approached the house and heard the music and dancing. He called one of the servants and asked what was going on, and he replied, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has gotten, back, gotten him back safe and sound. The father has to convince him. The father says, son, you are always with me, but we have to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing of God's holy word. So, you know we are in a sermon series throughout Lent where we are taking our old treasured hymns and setting them alongside our scripture and closing out with a new hymn. So, Amazing Grace is the foundational uh, hymn which we're turning to. And I love that this uh, insert which Sherry has made us has the text of Amazing Grace in it right beside the hymn we will close out worship with, My Life Flows On in Endless Song. And throughout this sermon series, what we are thinking about together is how is it that salvation works? How is it that we are saved? Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. How does it work, and how especially is the cross the moment that we as Christians point to and say, somehow through this experience, this death of Jesus on the cross, somehow we are saved. So you might notice that I have a little show and tell here. I I've always been an artist. I used to love to paint. When I was expecting Ainsley, I realized oil paints were toxic, and it makes such a mess to clean it up. I had to set my painting aside, and probably also because of that phenomenon they call nesting, I started to sew instead of to paint. And I started a quilt that I didn't finish until last year. Ainsley's 12. So it took me 12 years to figure out how to quilt. But during the pandemic, you know, people were taking up bread baking and hiking and all of these things. Well, I took up first sewing masks and then my skills got better and I 
finish that quilt and any quilter will tell you it's sort of a habit that once you start, I, I'm looking at Madeline Lee now because I know she's the, the resident quilter in the community. Once you start making quilts, you just keep making them and you make so many you have to give them away. Do we have other quilters in the room? Raise your hand if you're a quilter. Raise your hand if... Yes, Harper. Harper makes beautiful things by hand, not with a machine, all hand-stitched. Raise your hand if someone has ever given you a quilt. Yes, now lots of hands go up because quilters just... Quilters are going to quilt. They just keep going. So I want um, the idea of quilt making to be a metaphor for us today. I I didn't just start this as a hobby, but I went down this rabbit hole of studying quilting as an American art form. It's one of those things that's truly uniquely American, like baseball and apple pie. It's something that really originated here and is ours. And you can picture that it was born out of necessity, that people who were very poor and lived far away from mills and fabric was expensive, that they would um, take what had been worn down, they would take a dress for a woman, and once the sleeves had worn out, they would cut it down and make it fit a smaller child. They would salvage any fabric that they could get their hands on, and it became this new artistic expression. Not only an example when you give a quilt to someone of your love and your care for them, which it is, but also a community experience, that there were sewing bees and people would sit in circles and teach one another their skills, and they would make quilts as a community together. So if you turn to the cover of your bulletin, you will see these quilts from a place called G's Bend. There are books and documentaries about this amazing, amazing community that had been very far removed from the rest of society geographically because it was very hard to get to. And also socioeconomically, it was one of the most impoverished, some said the most impoverished place in America. And because of this isolation and this poverty, the women of G's Bend created quilts that look like you'll see on the cover here and so many others and it was something that they just loved to do an art form that they handed on but then an art dealer I guess we'll put discovered in quotes but came to visit them and realized what a treasure there was in G's Bend most of these women were descendants of slaves and he asked them, what would you sell one of these quilts for? And they said, sell them. We don't sell them. We make them. We use them. They're on our beds, on our children's beds. Some of them are stored, you know, under our beds. They're not for sale. And he said, well, if you were to sell them, and someone would say $5, the most he heard from someone was $12.50. And to his credit, he didn't take advantage of them, but he said, no, your quilts are the best example of modern art in America. These need to be hung in museums, the way they had interplay of color and texture and shape, the way they flow, the way they move. He said, this is the best America has of modern art. And he said they would be worth upwards of $2,000, and now they are even more. And he started gallery exhibits, and the women would travel together on buses, and he would have parties and gala openings, and they really became celebrated as the American artists that they are today. And so quilt making, one of the 
I really would encourage you to watch a documentary on it, but one of the quotes in it was, it's leftover things discarded by others, the way they've been discarded by society, and they take these discarded pieces and they give them new and transcendent life. This is how God works with us. We might feel lost. We might feel like one of those scraps of fabric out of a worn-out garment, but God sees the inherent value and dignity in us. And God sees how, when stitched together, we become community, and we become something more than we ever could have been on our own. So I wanted to show you these quilts, especially this one is my, my favorite that I've made. You can tell that I used to love to paint because it reminds me of a painter's palette. But it's in this experience, we don't entirely lose our individuality, but each, each fabric is its own moment with its own story, its own history. When my sister saw this, she said, oh, this was our bedding when we were little. And other people would recognize that the images have meaning. So especially women who couldn't read and write would encode their history into their quilts. It would be like a family photo album, and they would tell stories. And it just is, I think, an amazing thing that I think this is the way God sees us. This is the way God sees you, knows you, cherishes you, and values you. I think all of us have experiences and times in our life where we feel like we've been lost. And if we turn to Amazing Grace, an experience, I would change it to not I was blind, but I was not seen. I was unnoticed. I was overlooked. I was devalued. So I was invisible. And now I am seen. I'm given my place in a community, a place where, where I am counted as something, where I can be part of a bigger whole. So back to this idea of salvation. I think it's really important in these stories that we don't connect it to eternal life and that we realize that there is something so sacred about this life, about here and now, that we look at the cross as a moment of Jesus being the example of the most devalued, the most humiliated, betrayed, this public shame of being hung, hung on a cross for everyone to see. He was an example of what was so discarded and devalued, and it's through the resurrection that God shows what can be done with something that is so devalued. But in our lives, we can make our own hell for ourselves. The prodigal son went away, and he made himself miserable when he chose to turn away from a relationship. And we can make hell for one another. We make heaven or hell for ourselves and for each other on this earth. And what God offers us in salvation is salvation also in this life, that your life can turn around, that you can be transformed, that you can be salvaged and saved and recreated into something new. So in the hymn that we're going to close with, My Life Flows On in Endless Song, when we sing it toward the end of the worship service, I want you to listen to the words and notice, I hear the sweet though far-off hymn that hails a new creation, that 
This song also is about this present reality here and now, the shadows that we live in, the tyrants who make us tremble, and that what God offers us and calls us to is a restoration of experience, restoring us to wholeness and completion, restoring us to one another. And the last image I want to leave you with is the image of the father, the loving father running toward the son with outstretched arms. It didn't matter what the child had done. But what happens is sin and repentance is really just turning away from the love of God. And when you turn back toward that love, you will find God running toward you with outstretched arms to enfold you in an embrace like you are being wrapped up in the warmest quilt to give you a kiss and to say rejoice for I have found what was lost and now is found. Thanks be to God.